Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. This uh, uh, has got to be one of my favorite times of the year, spring. In fact, uh, I spent you know a few hours in my garage yesterday uh, preparing something else besides me being prepared for spring. I won't go into that, but uh, um, yeah, this is a great time of year. I know this this is going to be a typical week as far as spring goes, you know, with some really strong winds, it sounds like, tomorrow, and but also some days above 70, but then days below 60, and isn't that typical spring? So uh, glad you're here today, and glad those that are joining us online are joining us as well during this time. We are bringing to a close uh, this series that uh, you see on the screen, The Battles We Fight. Uh, it's been a four-part series. Uh, this is the fourth and final message. And one of the things that I pointed out early in the series is that each one of these topics that we've been dealing with are the kind of topics that you and I both can easily have the wrong impression about as far as widespread they are. Because these are the type of battles that people oftentimes end up fighting below the surface in their life. They don't make it public. In fact, for one reason or another, they keep it from being public. And so they're kind of like silent battles. And, and they, can, they can be pretty debilitating, you know. And uh, so it's not like, well, that makes them lesser uh, threats. Uh, no, these, these can be some pretty major things. Uh, and that's been true of all three of the topics we've already dealt with. And it certainly is true about this one today, spiritual doubt uh, that we're going to be talking about. In fact, in some respects, this one is one that we may be even more motivated to keep below the surface of our life as Christians uh, than, than the other three that we've already talked about. And we'll maybe get into a little bit of as to why that is. But let me, let me kind of get the ball rolling in today's message by refreshing your memory a little bit about uh, a well-known character in the Bible. His name is John. Now, when I just say the name John, you're probably thinking of the wrong John. Uh, this is John the Baptist. It's not that he wasn't Presbyterian or he wasn't Methodist. He was Baptist. No, that's uh, denominations. It, it was going to be hundreds and hundreds of years later that uh, people were going to create denominations. Uh, that was never a part of God's design, and there's not a shred of that found in the Bible. Uh, John the Baptist, he's called Baptist because he was a baptizer. And this was one of the things he was remembered for. In fact, when you stop and you just kind of think, what do you most remember John for? If you've been a decent student of the Bible, you know, a, a very popular answer that's going to come to your mind is that John was a forerunner of Christ, right? I mean, that's part of the way we remember him because it's spot on to the role that he played in the Bible. Uh, he wasn't physically that much older than Jesus, but he did appear on the scene ahead of time. He was preaching a message of repentance uh, that involved baptism, and he was preparing people's hearts. He was kind of, if you will, blazing a trail for the Messiah who was going to arrive on the scene. And so that's why in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read this verse. John has some of his disciples that are around him, and Jesus is approaching. Here's what it says. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was John's role, was to announce this and prepare people for it. As a matter of fact, uh, some of his own disciples became part of the nucleus of Jesus' disciples. They became followers of Jesus. And, and, and so this, this is an important role that John served in. Now, there are other things that we remember about John. Like, for example, we remember his flair for fashion, right? I mean, that guy, he has had impeccable taste as far as clothing goes. The Bible tells us that uh, his clothing was camel hair clothing. 
which kind of makes you want to itch just to mention it, right? I mean, yuck, you know, who would wear that? A leather belt and camel hair clothing. And, and then his diet was a unique diet as well. Here's, here's the verse that references both of those. Matthew 3, verse 4 says, Jesus's, or John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, uh, you know, just in my lifetime, you know, and I'm sure I'm not even going to touch on all the ones that have appeared on the scene, but I've noticed that people kind of have a tendency of taking the Bible and creating diets. Have you seen that happening? You know, back in the late 90s, it was a woman named Gwen Shamblin. You know, way down, does that ring a bell to anyone? It really got a big following in a lot of churches. Now, Gwen Shamblin, and she's still around, um, she, uh, boy, she was proof texting things all the time, pulling verses totally out of context, and I really had a problem with her, you know, as far as her teaching, and I, I felt like it was way out of bounds. Um, but she started this diet plan, and it really did get a, a, lot, a big following. Here in more recent years, there was a fellow out on the West Coast, uh, you, you perhaps recognize the name Rick Warren, and he started the Daniel Plan diet based on Daniel chapter 1. Now, I don't, for the most part, have a problem with Rick's teaching and all of this, and, and uh, um, Daniel chapter 1, eating lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of vegetables. Um, I really don't understand why. You know, I'll let the cow do that, and then I'll reap the benefit from that. But, uh, um, but anyway, the Daniel plan, you know, kind of became a big thing. And that's great. More, more, power, more power to Rick Warren and, and uh, bringing all that up. What has got me curious is why hasn't anyone picked up on John the Baptist and developed a, a diet plan that primarily focuses on eating bugs and honey? You know, so let me just say this. If anyone in here takes that and runs with it, I will buy a book from you when you write your book. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of unusual about John, the kind of way he dressed and the way that he ate. Um, but, you know, the one thing that we got to agree on uh, when we study about John the Baptist is that he was a man that was focused. He was a man that was bold in his faith, a man of conviction. In fact, remember he called out Herod's sin when Herod took his brother's wife and married her, took her for himself. And, uh, uh, and John the Baptist, you know, called that what it was. It was sin and, and shouldn't be happening. Well, Herod didn't receive that very well, and he ended up throwing John the Baptist into prison for an extended period of time, which eventually led to John's execution. Um, you know, there's a lot of beneficial talking points when it comes to John. But today, in starting this message, I just want to reference one that oftentimes gets overlooked. We don't talk about it very often, but I do think it's noteworthy. It's found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. It says this, now, when John, and that's referring to John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Are you the expected one? Are you the promised one? Are you the Messiah? I mean, that's what he's asking here. Are you the one that our people, the Jewish people, have been looking for for centuries? Now, you remember how John had introduced Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29. I already showed you that verse. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that was an earlier time. Not sure exactly how many months or even years that was earlier, but it was an earlier time. And now, here John is, and it seems apparent, he's struggling with some doubts. 
Is Jesus really the one? He's been hearing second, third hand, fourth hand information about Jesus, but he sends some trusted messengers, you know, to Jesus to ask the question, are you the promised one? Are you the expected one? Are you the one that we've been looking for? Well, Jesus responds, and we'll touch on Jesus' response later. But then when the messengers leave Jesus, here's what Jesus says about John. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty high opinion of John, right? And those are coming from the lips of Jesus. There's something here that we need to talk about. Largely because it's not uncommon for people to have this notion that pastors and church leaders, elders, and Bible college professors and the like, you know, never struggle with doubt. There's this notion that people have that, well, yeah, if you're a pastor, you know, or an elder in the church, this, this isn't something that you should ever have to worry about. You never have to wrestle with this kind of of thing. Well, today, part of what I'm wanting to accomplish here is I'm wanting to set the record straight in regards to that. Even the greatest men and women of God recorded in the Bible had to deal with doubt. And this is an example in Matthew chapter 11. No one is immune to it. Here, John the Baptist is second guessing if perhaps he had had it wrong all along in regards to who Jesus was. Think through the ramifications here and what must have been going through John's mind while he was sitting in this prison. I mean, he, he must have been replaying in his mind even things like John 1.29, where he encouraged a couple of his own followers to leave him and to become followers of Jesus. And he's like second-guessing. Was that the right thing for me to do? Is Jesus really the person that I at one time thought that he was? Here, here John is. He's away from the crowds, okay? So there's not a bunch of people pressing in on him. He's isolated. He's in the darkness of a prison cell. Some people would call that the perfect breeding ground for doubts. You know, and in many ways, yeah, it would be. The seeds of doubt can develop in a variety of different ways. I mean, you can, you can actually be witnessing to a coworker and just trying to plant some, some seeds uh, in their life that will hopefully bear fruit, lead them to Christ. And, and, uh, you know, and so you're kind of trying to witness to a coworker, and then your coworker says something back to you which triggers a memory of a certain verse that you've always gotten a lot of comfort or whatever from. And so you start quoting that verse to your coworker, hoping that it will bring them some encouragement and comfort. And your coworker gives you the eye as you're quoting a portion of the Bible, and they're like, you don't really believe that, do you? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, that's part of God's word. That's part of the Bible. I do believe that. And it says, oh, no, I, I, don't think, I don't think that's true. You know, my parents, you know, tell me that, that the Bible was written so long ago and it's been recopied and recopied and recopied so many times, it's a far cry from the way it originally read. You can't believe that. You can't trust that. And voila, all of a sudden your friend that you were trying to witness to has planted some seeds in your mind that are going to cause some doubt. It might even be later that day when you're laying in bed and you can't sleep and you're replaying the events and the conversations of the day and you reflect on that conversation and you're just like, how do I know? How do I know that the Bible wasn't just written in 800 AD? You know, so 800 years removed from the time of when the stuff that it says were happening and being taught you know, how did they know that this stuff really did happen? It may have changed shapes and sizes so many times over that 800 years, and then it was written down, and then it was recopied multiple times. And how can I have any confidence? And then there your mind goes down that path of doubt. It can happen a variety of ways. 
It could happen like it did with John the Baptist. You can find yourself in a setting where you're socially distanced from your familiar surroundings and by uh, the friends that usually you rub shoulders with fairly frequently. And, and maybe it's a time that you feel down, you feel that things are closing in on you, it's dark, and suddenly you find yourself questioning things you'd never questioned before. Yeah, I'm not describing you being in prison, but I might be describing you living during a pandemic at a stay-at-home order, and you're not around others. Yeah, you can talk a little bit on the phone and all, which is better than nothing, but sometimes you wonder, it's hardly better than nothing. You know, you're not seeing, you're not looking in the eyes of friends or giving them a hug or a firm handshake. And that distance, it wears on you after time. Yeah, you may not have spent any time in a prison, but, but uh, you can experience some of the same negative influences that can happen with social isolation in your life. And that can breed some doubts in your mind. A number of you... You've been down these paths. You've experienced, you know, some of this, and maybe that's where the doubts originally came from. When I was a young man, I had some health issues. One, it seemed like, after another. You know, I was, I was just got out of college, an eventful time, period of time in my life, got out of college um, within two months, twin sons, were born. It was an exciting time starting a new ministry, um, and uh, um, and then I was diagnosed with cancer just a couple months later, and had to go through you know fairly big surgeries like removing my spleen and radiation treatments and all of this kind of stuff and and uh, all the bone marrow biopsies, all those kinds of things that go along with some of that. And, uh, but then, you know, I got my feet back underneath me and it was like, okay, now things are trending in the right direction. About the time, you know, I, I got air back in my chest again, was able to breathe, then boom, it hits again with round two, which was far worse. Spending a couple months in the hospital and going through chemotherapy and some of the side effects this time were absolutely brutal with blood clots in my lungs and all of that you know, kind of garbage. And, and it was in the middle of all of that that I remember wrestling with thoughts like, why? Why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? I mean, here I am. I'm, I'm trying to, to give my life in service to God. You know, and I'm living hours away, a couple of states away from any of my siblings and my parents. I'm living in an area that I would never uh, have found myself living in had it not been for God's call to ministry. And, and yet, this is what's happening. Cancer after cancer, radiation uh, and chemo and just one treatment after another. And yeah, I found myself experiencing some doubts. But even that, you know, uh, as, as hard as that was, you know, wasn't as impactful as, and, and I'm just being open here with this because it's something I haven't talked a great deal about, but losing my son just a few years ago, I cannot think of anything more difficult that a person goes through in their life than losing a child. And especially after Josh had dealt with depression and all for so many years, um, and, and then his death, uh, I would have much rather gone through cancer again and all the surgeries and treatments associated with that. Um, especially when, when you look at a death that just had any angle you looked at it from any way you tried to size it up, you could find absolutely no purpose in it. And boy, that just tears your heart out. Not just once, but over and over and over again. And you talk about stirring up some doubts and causing you to question things that maybe you had never questioned before. Yeah, it does. And any parent in here that's lost a child, you know exactly what I'm talking about in that regards. It happens. A number of you have been there. You know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. 
And so what I want to do this morning is I, I want to clear up a few misconceptions because unfortunately there are some misconceptions that are almost treated like they're facts and they're far from being facts. Misconception number one, doubt is the opposite of faith. That is not true. It is a very common misconception, but it is not true. Actually, the opposite of faith is unbelief. And um, that is certainly different than doubt. Doubt is being indecisive. Doubt is being ambivalent over an issue. Doubt um, is, means that you're kind of up in the air. You have questions and concerns about a particular facet or teaching or passage in the Bible that you just can't get settled on. That's what doubt is. The fact is you can have a strong faith and still have doubts. You can be heaven bound and still have the uncertainty um, that you're wrestling with about a certain passage or a certain teaching that's found in the Bible. I, I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons that the book of Psalms always gets rated highly when people uh, are asked, what is your favorite portion of the Bible to read? Okay, now the answer seems to always end up being the Gospels. Okay, that, that always comes out top on the list and you can totally understand you know why that is. But not too far behind that, Psalms is always competing with being people's favorite portion of the Bible to read. And part of the reason for that is because the psalm writers, man, they just laid it out there and it was raw. David wrote over half of the psalms and he not only talks about the high points in his life, he talks about the low points in his life, including the doubts that he wrestled with. And I think people are drawn to that because um, they're reading something that is actually expressing what was or has been their own experience in life. And so anyway, that is misconception number one. Doubt is the opposite of faith. That is not true. Okay? Misconception number two. Doubt offends God. People oftentimes have this idea that to question God is kind of like an act of treason. I mean, if you're, if you're going to question God, well, then go ahead and take his name in vain because they're like on the same level. You know, you just don't do that. And that goes, I think, a long way in helping to explain why people, believers, Christians, you know, end up ignoring or suppressing their doubts or even seemingly sweeping their doubts under the rug. And it's not just because they don't know how to deal with them, but they don't want anyone else to see you know, because then they'll think less of them. It's like, what, you have doubts? Oh, you're a lesser Christian. <laughs> you're a fringe Christian. You're obviously not a strong Christian. And so it's real easy for people that have this particular notion, you know, regarding doubt, it's real easy for those to be the people who are pretending that those doubts aren't there at all. It is certainly a battle that is below the surface in their life. You know, but, and that's unfortunate because that's not true. It is not true. Our doubts do not offend God. The God that we serve is a big God. And he can handle the fact that you've got some struggles that are going on. He is not threatened by your doubts. Sincere doubts do not mean that your faith has died. Sincere doubts do not mean that your faith has ceased to exist. Rather, doubts mean that you're trying to understand your faith at a deeper level than what you did before. That's actually the dynamic that is happening. As a matter of fact, experiencing doubts and taking positive steps toward resolving those doubts can actually be, end up being one of the best things that could happen to you. Because in the end, you end up being stronger than what, what you were in the beginning. In Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus heard John's doubts, are you the expected one? Now, Jesus had heard the words of John before, behold, the Lamb of God, you know, who takes away the sin of the world. But this time he's hearing John's words, are you the one we've been looking for or should we keep on looking? When, in, in Matthew 11, when Jesus hears those words, you read the text for yourself. What you will see, or better stated, what you won't see is Jesus criticizing John. He does not make one critical remark of John. He doesn't criticize him. He, he doesn't express disappointment 
in John? Because he would even think of asking such a question. Instead, what do you see Jesus doing? You see Jesus paying John the highest compliment that anybody could ever receive. A compliment straight from the lips of the Son of God. Among those born of women, no one is greater than John. And that was immediately following, you know, those expressions of doubt. Yeah, Jesus definitely didn't think less of them. So the whole idea that our doubt offends God, that has no basis at all. Number three, misconception, doubt is unhealthy. And we've kind of touched on this already in explaining these others. Now, doubts will be unhealthy if we suppress them, if we sweep them under the rug and we flat out ignore them and cross our fingers and hope they go away. Yeah, that can be very unhealthy because in those cases, those doubts can fester and they can spread and they can get worse and they can even go beyond you and, and, and spread into uh, your family's lives or other people's lives, people that look up to you. However, if we approach our doubts responsibly, then they can end up working to our benefit. It's, and this isn't going to be a hard illustration right now. I don't have to spend a whole lot of time developing this one. Um, but it's like an immunization, right? We're hearing a lot of that, you know, in the news right now. Your body receives a little bit of a disease or a little bit of a virus, and then your body builds up the antibodies to fight off the disease. Um, should the disease ever come and threaten you at a later time, your body is equipped and capable of fighting it off better. Your body actually ends up stronger from the experience of it all. Well, the same thing is true regarding your faith. You emerge stronger. You go through some doubts, struggle with some doubts, and you wrestle and you do some of the healthy things and trying to resolve those doubts. And as a result, you come out the other side of that and your conviction has depth in it that it didn't have before. You no longer are riding on your parents' coattails. You know, there's people in churches all across the land who are still riding on their parents' coattails. They believe what they believe because mom and dad believe it, and they really don't have much of a basis to say anything beyond that. But when you struggle with doubts, you have that challenge facing you, and you take some healthy measures to approach that, that helps you to get your feet under you as far as your faith is concerned, and you're no longer riding on your parents' coattails spiritually. Christianity is not so fragile that it's going to crumble if you ask hard questions. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that when you come to Christ, whoa, 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 wait a minute, check your brains at the door, then enter in. It does not say that in the Bible. It can stand up to whatever questions that you're wrestling with that seem to maybe even be having the upper hand in your life at this point in time. This is why Jesus responded to John's question in the way that he did. This is what Jesus' response was to those messengers. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Basically, he just said, here's some of the evidences. Make sure John knows this. What you've observed, what you've seen, what you've heard, share this. Jesus didn't say, well, you go back to that prophet and chastise him for having, having the, 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 the feeling that he could ask such a horrible question to begin no he didn't do that instead he said guys you've been watching right you've been seeing you've been hearing the things I've been teaching make sure John hears that share your testimony with him so see he's giving he's given John some some of the evidences that is going to help make a difference with the doubts that John is wrestling with. This helps explain why in a really really short book of the New Testament Jude Chapter 1, there can only be one chapter. It's so short. 
But in Jude chapter 1, verse 22, we find this verse. Be merciful to those who doubt. You see, this is God's take on it. And this is the way God wants us to approach people. Whether this be your children or your grandchildren, whether this be um, a, a, a believer that you've looked up to for a long time, but now they're going through a period of time for one, some reason or another, they're really struggling this is to be the way that you and I approach them. We are to be merciful to them. We don't jump their case. We don't take the stereotypical approach that you've probably heard numerous preachers talk about before, about how the little kid that, that grew up in Sunday school and he started asking certain questions and his teacher jumped his case and said, don't ever ask that again. Don't be asking why, just believe. You know, and ever since that time, little Johnny, that's been the attitude that he's had was, I cannot ask any questions. I just got to believe, and I'm having a hard time with that. And so little Johnny drifts. That is not to be the attitude, the approach that we take, that we don't bite people's heads off. We don't jump their case. We don't condemn them if they express doubt. Instead, we're merciful to them, as what Jesus was being with John the Baptist. Okay, so we've kind of established a little bit here what not to do. You know, don't ignore it, don't suppress it, don't sweep it under the rug. What are we to do with the doubts that we wrestle with in our life? Well, here's a few suggestions. It all begins with prayer. We should be praying about whatever it is that you're wrestling with. You know, whether it's just something as basic as the existence of God or whether it's, is the Bible reliable? You know, or, or how's Christianity any different from any other religion? It seems like all of them, you know, have equal amounts of truth. I mean, whatever the doubt is, you know, that, that you're experiencing, begin it, bathe it with prayer. This is where it starts. Be upfront and honest with God because God already sees it. God already is totally aware that this is going on in your life. You just need to establish, if for no one else than just for yourself, that your reliance is upon him. And so you make it a matter of prayer. I think a, a good example of this is Mark chapter 9. It talks about a dad who uh, has the uh, unfortunate... Um, experience of seeing his son from an early age grow up and he is just tormented. He is tormented by some kind of an evil spirit and, and he gets thrown into seizures and convulsions and stuff like that. And that's been going on not just for weeks or months, but it's been going on for years. And so this dad brings his son to Jesus's disciples because word about Jesus and his band of merry men, you know, um, going from one location to another and with their, their unique teachings and, and some of the signs and wonders that were happening, you know, that has preceded Jesus and his disciples. And so this dad, he brings his son, and first of all, he talks to the disciples, and the disciples can do nothing about it, okay? They, they, can't, they can't help you know, fix the problem that's going on here. And so then Jesus appears on the scene and Jesus wants a little bit of clarification. So we'll pick it up there. In Mark chapter nine, starting in verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, let me just pause for a moment on that. This is coming from the dad's mouth, and he's saying this to Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came from eternity and took on human flesh and, and dwelt here on earth as a man for a number of years. Jesus is the one who spoke all of creation into existence. That's who we're talking about here. Jesus is able to raise the dead, which by this point in time, he had already done that. And this dad looks at Jesus and says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I can see Jesus looking right into his eyes, and Jesus says, if you can. You know, in view of who Jesus is, 
I mean, Jesus could have, he could have really come off strong here with this guy. But instead he says, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And, and this is where the dad, I mean, just, just, it's raw, but it's just pure. It tells us where his heart is. The dad responds by saying this, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I think what that is an expression of is the dad is saying, I do have faith, but sometimes my faith is shaky. Help me with the faith that I lack. Yeah, I think, I think this dad struggled with doubts. And I think he was making the request to the right person. And that's why I start off by saying, what should you do if you wrestle with doubts? You need to pray about it. You need to bring it before the Lord. Sometimes the best prayers are, are the most raw prayers and, and even at times most blunt prayers. Another thing that we should do is we should do our homework. Do our homework. Doubts can develop in more than one way. I've already talked about that to a certain degree earlier. But, but there is um, a, a form of doubt that can develop in a person's life in a way that I haven't touched on yet. Um, sometimes doubts aren't necessarily intellectual doubts. Doubts are sometimes created by moral decisions, or should I say immoral decisions that people make in their lives. If your doubts that you're wrestling with are related to a compromising lifestyle where you have decided, though you know what the clear teaching of God's word is in a particular area of your life, you have deliberately chosen to live a different way. I'm not going to do that. And then as a result of that, you start struggling with doubt, and you will. You will encounter doubts. If you disregard God's clear spoken word, you make a deliberate choice to go a different path, you're going to, in the very least, experience some doubts. Well, in that kind of a case, the homework that you need to do involves house cleaning. To use a good biblical word, it's repentance. That's what needs to be happening in your life. You need to repent of the sin in your life that you've invited, the compromising lifestyle that you've gotten yourself into, and you need to be getting more in line with what God's clear teaching of his word says. You know, and, and then, then you're going to find yourself on the path of really being able to address whatever uh, those doubts are, you know, that, that are so bothersome to you. Now, on the other hand, if like in largely what I have been talking about, your doubts are more along an intellectual um, level of some type, whether it be like the reliability of, of Scripture or whether it be whether or not you're saved and feeling like, you know, well, I can see how other people are saved, but you know yourself better than anyone else, right? And so you find yourself doubting your own salvation. If, 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 if your doubts are something along those lines, then what I would encourage you to do is to do the kind of research that you need to do. And some of that may involve getting your hands on another book in addition to the Bible that you can spend some time in. When I was 17 and I gave my life to Christ, I, I actually bought two Bibles. The first Bible I bought, I didn't know any better. It was a King James version. King James, some of you, you cut your teeth, you know, on that, you know, and so you've known it since you were a little kid, and so it's almost second nature. But for a teenager that had never been exposed to that before, I was just like, what in the world is going on here? You know, it's like this terminology is just making this into some kind of a mystery or uh, mythical, you know, type language or something or other. And then I found out, well, there's more modern translations. So I went back and bought another Bible, and that one I, I could actually read and understand. But after those initial two purchases of those Bibles, I found that I started struggling with some doubts. You know, I mean, I made a decision for Christ. I, I threw my hat in the ring, you know, whole hog sold out, follower of Jesus Christ. But then I started having some doubts. 
I started having some of those doubts about the reliability of Scripture. How do I know that this stuff wasn't just written in 900 A.D.? Some guy just totally dreamt it up out of the blue just to see how gullible other people would be in believing it. How do I know that that's not the case? Those were the kind of questions that I was having a rough time with. And so the first book that I bought outside of those first two Bible purchases was a book that was pretty hot off the press. Uh, written by a guy who's still alive today, though he's, he's up there in years, Josh McDowell. And the title of that book, and it's about this thick of a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's kind of a unique book because it's a book that's entirely written in outline form, which is kind of odd. But that's kind of the way my mind works. And so, man, I just loved it. And, and I just went over and over, and there were parts of it that were too deep for me, but, but there were other parts. It was addressing the very thing that I needed. It was helping me, you know, with some of the areas that I was struggling with doubts. Now, now Josh McDowell and his book, Evidence of Man's Verdict, that certainly isn't the only book out there. Another guy, Paul Little, that died a number of years ago, uh, he wrote a thinner book, uh, Know Why You Believe. And that is a book that every couple of years they give a revision, an update to, to keep some of the illustrations and stuff uh, up to date. And I, I found that an excellent book. In fact, in one of the small groups I led for several years, it was required reading, you know, to be a part of that small group. I thought so highly of that book. There's other books that have come out in the last 20, 25 years, um, you know, by people like Lee Strobel, The Case for Faith, or, or The Case for a Creator, and, and there's a number of good books out there, but the thing is, to deal with some of the doubts that you might be dealing with, you know, to read some of the works uh, that others who have gone down that path and struggled with some of the same thoughts and have articulated things well in book form like that. that. That can be the kind of homework that can really help shore up your faith. Number three, make sure you got some healthy habits going on in your life. Not the least of which is spending time in this book. As much as all these other books can be beneficial, you don't want to just be reading books about the Bible. You want to be reading the Bible. This is of paramount importance. And those of you that have been a part of this church since the beginning, you know, back in the mid-90s, you know this has been an emphasis I've made in challenging people to read through the Bible. Get into it. Spend time in it. Make commitments. Right now we've got two different groups, organized groups, that are going through the Bible. One will be happening during this next worship hour down the hall. And, and they're reading and they're discussing with one another what they're seeing as they read through the Bible. I've got one that is, has been in Zoom form that hopefully soon we're going to be changing that and meeting in person. Um, but, uh, but again, it's for reading through the Bible. And then I've got a number of people here in the church that have been sending me emails saying, hey, I know I didn't join you know, a, a group, but I just want you to know I'm reading through the Bible this year. I've taken you up on your challenge. And, and that is a healthy habit. Um, a, another healthy habit is what you're doing right now. Coming and being a party of a setting like this. And I know for a number of you, you know, you, you did the live stream, which we've got some folks that are doing that right now. Uh, you know, and that's good. But nothing replaces this right here. Because part of what you get here are the dynamics of the interaction with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I see some heads nodding of people that I know. You've been live streaming for months. And, and you are under that conviction too. You believe that. Rubbing shoulders with one another. Um, being inspired by the examples of others. And by hearing the words of encouragement to others. One of the go-to verses that I've... Uh, oh, this, this is on reading the Bible for yourself, if you're wanting to strengthen your faith. I should have shown that a couple minutes ago. Here's the one that I go to frequently um, in Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And I believe that principle applies to our faith, that, that we can and do have an impact on one another. 
in helping to sharpen one another's faith. So whether it be settings like this, whether it be settings of small group settings, whether it be ministry teams working alongside people, it's not just the the work of service that is being accomplished, it's the time you spend with brothers and sisters in Christ that is accomplishing a, a really cool, needed dynamic in your life. All right, so healthy habits, there are several of them, and those are a few examples. And then number four, remember, it's faith. We're talking about struggling with doubts, and the temptation is to kind of suppress them and don't let people know that they're going on in your life. The thing, though, deep down inside, you got to realize, we're talking about the faith. Many, many years ago, when I made that decision to give my life to Christ, I knew that I had a choice. I knew that I was at a fork in the road. And I could either continue going the way that I had been living and the way most of the people that, you know, were my friends and that I hung out with, the way that they were living their life, I could continue down that path or I could go down a different path. And that is a path of living by faith. And that was the decision I made, knowing full well that this is a less traveled path. I won't have as many people on this path with me. But yet, isn't that what a Christian does? Second Corinthians 5, we live by faith, not by sight. That is a decision I made over 40 years ago, but it is a decision I continue to make to this day. You know, if I had 100% of the answers to 100% of my questions, there'd be no room for faith. I mean, this is part of the nature of faith, is that there are some things that, that you don't know every in and out, you don't know every detail about. The, the paraphrased version of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, reads this way. In the same way, we can see and understand only a little about God now as if we were peering at his reflection in a poor mirror. But someday, we're going to see him in his completeness, face to face. Now, all that I know is hazy and blurred. But then, I will see everything clearly, just as clearly as God sees into my heart right now. You know, the admission that Paul is making in that passage is that he understands he is a limited person. He is limited his mind, his understanding, and God is infinite. And there are bound to be some questions about God that we're not going to end up having answered, not in the here and now. To receive that clear answer, some of these will have to wait until glory. It's part of what living by faith is about. Everyone, to one degree or another, wrestles with doubts. You're not alone. And that's a big part of what I wanted to communicate here today is that though it sometimes it maybe appears that no one else is struggling with some of the doubts that you're struggling with, you're not alone. A lot of people wrestle with doubts and the devil would love to use those doubts as a wedge to drive you away from the Lord. You know, but don't let them do that. They don't need to have that kind of an effect on you. In fact, your doubt can have the opposite effect and can actually draw you closer with a stronger faith. I want to close with one last verse. Because someone might look at all this and say, wait, this is Palm Sunday. Why are we talking about doubt, spiritual doubt of all times? In the shadow of Easter, really? Why are we talking about doubt? Well, there's a very good reason. Because when I open the Bible, I look and I see in the shadow of Easter some of that, that inner circle group of Jesus, his disciples, they had doubts. And I'm talking about shadow from the other side of the resurrection. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, just hardly over a month later, Jesus met with his disciples and gave what is called the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, that starts in verse 18 of Matthew 28. Do you know what verse 20 or verse 17? Do you know what it says? Let me refresh your memory. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. 
but some of them doubted. Well, who is the pronoun them? Look at verse 16. It's his disciples. That's who it's talking about. So here Jesus died on the cross, was buried. He rose again, had several resurrection appearances to his disciples. And now he's appearing to them and giving them the great commission. And it says they worshiped him, but some of them were doubting. If you're here today and you kind of kick yourself because you struggle with doubts, I want to tell you something. You're in good company. Just keep moving forward in your faith. Develop some of these healthy habits. Continue to be very intentional in spending time around brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. It doesn't mean you disbelieve. It doesn't mean that you've, like, committed spiritual treason. God can help you through whatever those doubts are. We're going to have our time of communion, and if you picked up a communion cup, um, you're ready for this. If not, you can still get one. I don't know if they're on the back table, but I know there's some out in the entry area if you need to get one. But in just a moment, I'm going to encourage you to, you know, eat the bread and then drink the cup. And when you do, to be reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. Ultimately, it was the reason he came into this world. He took on human flesh and he lived among us was so that he could pay that ultimate sacrifice. He could be your substitute to free you from sin and to help reserve a place for you in heaven. So this is to be a prayerful time, a time of reflection, a time of expressing gratitude, a time of just being still and letting this, the Lord speak to your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. And I thank you for your word and the opportunity we've had to talk about something that for some of us hits really, really close to home. Lord, we pray that you'd be glorified. We just love you and we want to be close to you. We want to be closer than what we are to you. And we pray through your spirit, you will help lead us on that path of experiencing that blessing of a special relationship with you in deeper ways than ever before. Thank you for Jesus. The very thing we needed most, Jesus provided by dying on our behalf. We celebrate that today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.